The following is a conversation with Dr. Sonia Mykak. Dr. Mykak is a research fellow at the Ukrainian Studies Foundation and a professor at the Australian National University's Centre for European Studies. Today's conversation unpacks the history behind Russia-Ukrainian conflicts, includes a deep dive into the Ukrainians' perception of Putin and of Russia, and describes likely paths forward and the outcomes of this conflict. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Dr. Sonia Mykak, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. No problem. Thanks for um, inviting me to be with you. No worries. I'm really looking forward to the chat. Um, I'm really looking forward to taking a deep dive into this conflict that is uh, taking up much of the news at the moment, and that is between Russia and Ukraine. I really wanted to, to begin today by getting an understanding of the origins of the conflict. I think there's so much that's said in the media about um, what's occurring right now, but I think we should take a backward step and, and understand how this actually began and came to be. So if you could start, please, by explaining the origins of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Yeah, thanks for the question. It is a really important question. And um, obviously when Russian troops began amassing on the borders of Ukraine, most Australians um, understood this to be a recent act of aggression. And when Russian forces then invaded Ukraine in a full-scale attack um, on February 24, it was believed by most that a new war had begun. Now, what was not understood was the backstory to this chain of events. And mainly what was not understood, I think, or widely known, was that this current invasion is actually a further, not a first, invasion of Ukraine. And... If you don't mind, I'll just take a few minutes to explain what I mean by that, uh, because I think it is important to, to, you know, to, to look at the context of what's happening here. Now, what we are seeing now is actually a part of a war begun by Russia eight years ago, from the time in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded two regions in eastern Ukraine. They're those regions collectively known as Donbass. Luhansk and Donetsk um, sort of provinces. Now, over at the eight years since 2014, um, close to 15,000 Ukrainian soldiers and civilians were killed. So that's the first thing that's important to remember that actually this, this uh, invasion began eight years ago. But there's even a further backstory to that. And what I mean by that is Russian imperialist ideology which underlies Putin's agenda. And there are two things that um, I normally say when I am explaining uh, this. Firstly, um, that Putin has imperialistic ambitions to take control of Ukrainian territory, basically, and to reestablish a Russian empire. And of course, these sorts of ambitions really date back hundreds of years to the Tsarist empire and then later to the Soviet Union. And we know, for example, Putin has never accepted the disintegration of the Soviet Union. So that's the first point to understand. The second point is that Putin does not accept the existence of an independent Ukraine. And what I mean by that is that Russian imperialist ideology doesn't recognize that Ukrainians are a separate people uh, with their own language, their own culture, and their own identity. And this ideology lies at the base of Putin's actions. 
I must say that I personally felt vindicated when I was voicing this um, kind of analysis on February 21st, because both of these factors were actually evident in Putin's televised address to the people of Russia um, on that night, in which he stated both of those things. He basically said that Ukrainian statehood was a fiction and that his so-called special military operation was to reclaim ancient Russian lands. Now, taking uh, these factors into account, we then can understand that the other so-called causes for the invasion, such as Ukraine's aspirations to join NATO, the need to protect Russian speakers, uh, the need to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, that these were really excuses for Putin to launch a full-scale invasion within a war that had already begun. Um, and I think that, you know, just briefly, it's worth mentioning that when we look at those so-called causes, um, we can see that one by one, you know, they really showed, showed themselves to be fake. Now, for example, um, Zelensky forfeited aspirations to join NATO, you know, quite a while ago, and yet Russian forces continue to attack. Russian forces are killing Russian speakers, not protecting them. And despite Putin's stated aim of demilitarizing Ukraine, 90% of Russian shelling is carried out on non-military targets. So, um, you know, that figure actually came from the State Emergency Service of Ukraine, but I think it's widely accepted now um, by all the sort of um, media outlets and, and observers that Russia is targeting civilian infrastructure. Um, so, it's important, as I said, to understand the backstory. The backstory is that this is part of a war that actually began eight years ago, but that war is underlied by Russian imperialist ideology. And what is the Ukrainians' view of Vladimir Putin? You touched on, I guess, his aspirations. How is he perceived prior to the conflict? And what are his perceptions amongst Ukrainians now um, that it's occurred? Yeah, another good question. Well, as I've just explained, because this has actually been an eight-year war, uh, he was already viewed very negatively. Um, he was viewed as an imperialist who was encroaching on Ukrainian territory. And in fact, here I can quote from a national survey that was taken in April of last year, not April of this year, so April of 2021. Um, so at that stage, there had been seven years of war. Now, 57% of adult Ukrainians surveyed, surveyed at that time feared that uh, Putin would seize more territory. Now, to be honest, I actually think that that figure would be, would be greater in, in real life. I think that the survey results came back with 57%. However, um, I know certainly from my contacts in Ukraine um, that there was a, an expectation that um, that annexation of Crimea, that um, incursion into Eastern Ukraine, uh, that basically it would not stop there, that it was really a matter of time um, before you know, the Russian Federation uh, did more and tried to take more territory. So, the long, the short answer is, you know, he's viewed very negatively. The other point to make is that 
you know, some commentators uh, felt that, you know, in parts of Eastern Ukraine, particularly in Russian speaking areas of Ukraine, that, you know, there were sympathies towards uh, Russia. Well, I never could see that, but on the, but the one thing we can say now is that if there were such sentiments, they certainly don't exist anymore. Uh, the country, I think, is unified. The people of Ukraine are unified in understanding who the aggressor is and in understanding that this is an unprovoked um, you know, invasion. Yeah, I would like to dive into those sympathisers a little bit more. Is there any argument to be had that because the Ukraine that the Ukraine might have been positioning themselves too closely with Western allies and that if the roles were reversed, say, Russia was positioning themselves with people in and around countries such as the US, that the US would respond in a similar way? Is there any substance to that argument or is that completely false? Yeah, look, I don't find that argument acceptable at all. Uh, Firstly, Ukraine is a sovereign nation. It's an independent nation since 1991. Uh, you know, it has been a sovereign state. And as such, you know, Ukraine has the right, had the right, has the right to enter into its own agreements, you know, with, with other countries, whether that be joining, you know, the, the EU, the European Union, whether that be, you know, having aspirations, military aspirations to join, you know, defence um, arrangements and the like. So I don't accept that there's, any reason why Ukraine would, should not be given, you know, that independence that every other sovereign state, you know, in the world uh, can enjoy. I mean, secondly, I think the notion of spheres of influence is really an outdated imperialist concept. I mean, to, to see one country as nothing more than a sphere of influence of another country, you know, even if that country is larger and more aggressive, uh, to me, is not an acceptable way that we should be seeing the world, um, you know, in 2022. Uh, you know, Ukraine is not just a sphere of influence of Russia. Ukraine is, a, is an independent state. And we should also remember that even if Ukraine had uh, aspirations to join NATO, to align more closely um, with the United States, to align particularly to join the European Union, which, of course, Ukraine had already been in the process um, of doing, of applying to join the EU. Ukraine at no time threatened any Russian territory. And, you know, there are no, I mean, put blank, put, you know, simply there are no Ukrainian tanks rolling in to Russia across the Russian border. Um, So, you know, Ukraine did not pose any military threat to Russia at any time. We discussed uh, Putin in great depth. I'd love to I guess, take a dive into Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine. Uh, he's been represented as rather strong and noble um, and quite a positive figure. Do you agree and do Ukrainians agree with that representation of him? Are they, are they glad to have him at the helm through this conflict? Yep, you know, an important question again. I personally wouldn't use the word noble. And in actual fact, I think we could, we could probably find words that are opposite to that um, to describe him. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But yeah, I would say that he has been a strong leader. Um, I think that he, well, first of all, he's a very effective communicator. And clearly his experience with the media, um, you know, assists him in 
his presentations. And you probably know that he was a very popular television personality um, before he was elected as president. And we can talk a little bit about that if that is of interest. But um, he's a very effective communicator. But, but, you know, I believe he genuinely believes what he's saying. And we see him, for example, he gives a nightly address to the nation, um, to the Ukrainian nation, uh, which I follow, I, I listen to every day. And I think that we can see in those nightly addresses that he really experiences different emotions and different stages, you know, disbelief and grief and anger. Um, and I think he's actually quite direct and honest um, in the sense that when he's speaking to the Ukrainian people, you know, we can really sense his frustration or his disappointment. For example, earlier um, in the in the piece when NATO countries were refusing to close the sky, were refusing to um, give fighter jets to Ukraine, um, you could really sense his frustration and his disappointment. And he was openly sort of, he would openly say that this is how he feels. So I think, you know, he reports also to the people of Ukraine. Um, he tells them, for example, what he's done that day. You know, he says, I spoke with such and such a person. Um, I, I, you know, our cabinet met and made such and such a decision. So I think that, that he, he's direct, he's honest with the people. I think he showed a genuine commitment when he decided three days after the full-scale invasion on February 24 that he would not leave Ukraine. And of course, you know, his statement, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, um, you know, it, it sort of, I guess, went viral and, and, you know, affected, you know, the world. But I think that we can see it's such an, it was a really effective message because with just a few words, he, A, communicate, you know, he said that he would basically endanger his own life by remaining in Kiev, which was at that stage under direct attack. And secondly, that he would, you know, he promised to fight. And I think that that strength, um, you know, we've seen that strength in his leadership. Zelensky has been very effective, I think, firstly, in supporting the morale of the Ukrainian population. Um, and secondly, I think he has been very effective in mobilizing the support of other nations. And he has really um, been very, very active in appearing, obviously, by televised links to the parliaments of other countries, including Australia, um, you know, he's, he's appeared to, you know, in front of many, many parliaments in which he, at which time he sort of makes a very direct um, appeal to those parliaments and to the people, peoples of those countries. Um, so I agree that, yes, he's been a very strong leader. He's been a very effective leader. The reason why I wouldn't use the word noble, though, is that although I think he's very praiseworthy, I think a striking aspect of his presidency is his presentation of himself as no more and no better than an ordinary citizen. And, you know, for example, when, when he's asked how he's coping, you know, with the burden and responsibility, his response um, has been that he's coping in the same way that all citizens of Ukraine are coping. And then he immediately notes that he has not yet lost any loved ones. And I've seen him answer this question several times. And what he does, he deflects attention away from himself and focuses on the pain and suffering experienced by, you know, those Ukrainians who have lost their sons and their daughters and their husbands and their wives and 
parents and friends. Um, so in terms of his responsibility, which we know must be huge, I mean, you know, when we think about the job he's tasked with, you know, it's, it's the magnitude, you know, is huge. But he always sort of speaks, you know, very matter-of-fact terms, saying, look, this is a job I have to do, and I am just an ordinary citizen like everyone else. Now, this presentation of himself as an ordinary citizen has actually marked his entire presidency. Um, he campaigned on the grounds that he was just a regular person who wanted to change his country for the better. And he certainly appealed to many voters. In fact, he was elected with like a 73% majority. So you know, he was elected with a very high majority. Um, and I think that he was elected with that high majority precisely because he was seen as someone who was not a politician, not an oligarch, uh, not part of a political or a financial elite. Um, and, and I think that his presidency, throughout his presidency, you know, he's maintained this um, image or perception of himself, I think, as someone who is a regular guy. Um, I think at first there were people who were concerned that this would mean that he would be inexperienced and unable to, to deal with the demands of a presidency, particularly if, you know, the war further um, increased. I mean, he campaigned very heavily on the grounds of stopping the war uh, three years ago when he, when he was campaigning. And there were also people who were worried that his, he would actually capitulate to Russian demands um, about Crimea and about Eastern Ukraine because he was so heavily stating that he wants the war to end. But I think, um, you know, those, those fears have been proven to be false because you know, he's consistent in his message and his message, even recently over the last few days, we've seen um, some calls from people like the president of France, Macron, um, saying that, you know, Ukraine should consider ceding some territory so that, so that, you know, the war can end. And Zelensky has been firm saying that, you know, that will not be acceptable, you know, to the Ukrainians. You mentioned that uh, Zelensky had some sort of a presence and has been very active in communicating with parliaments and I guess calling out for support and assistance. How do we balance the fine line between giving support for Ukraine um, but also making sure to not become involved in the conflict and to perhaps escalate it to another level? How do we balance that rather precarious line and should we ba balance it? Yeah, look, I'm not sure that we should be trying to balance it. Um, I think that the United States uh, and NATO have been trying to balance, um, you know, that line, as you say, between support and involvement um, by limiting their military aid, firstly, and then secondly, by not sending their own troops. Now, the decision to send troops is obviously one that each country must decide, you know, for itself. Um, and, you know, I, I, for example, fully accept that each country, um, you know, has the right to make that decision, you know, for its own population. Uh, we, we should note, though, and remember that Zelensky never asked for troops from other countries. So Ukraine has never actually asked for any, um, any foreign forces to come and join. Uh, 
Ukraine has you know, did open a pathway for individuals who had served in defence forces who wished to volunteer um, to, to you know, travel to Ukraine and be screened and joined um, and join you know the, the Ukrainian military. But but in terms of asking countries to send troops, you know, Ukraine has never done that. Um, the other element of the balancing between support and involvement was the limitation of military support. Now, <clears throat> the, the United, the, the US and, and Europe and the United Kingdom, you know, for many, many weeks refused to send heavy weaponry, for example. Um, now, in my view, that was a mistake. Had they done so earlier, um, what we're seeing now might've been quite different. Um, at that time, the military aid was being restricted, you know, at first to, you know, non-lethal weapons, then, then effectively to lethal weapons, but were very, very um, tied to defensive uh, missions rather than offensive kind of actions. Um, and even with that limitation in the military support Ukraine was receiving, you know, we effectively saw Russia not able to achieve its aims. I mean, it's now widely understood and I think pretty much accepted by everyone that Russia's aim originally was to uh, occupy, you know, take over the whole of Ukraine by uh, entering Kyiv, the capital city, deposing Zelensky, putting a puppet government um, in, in the place of the elected you know, Ukrainian government, and therefore, you know, being in administrative control of, of the whole of Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainian forces managed to stop that happening, um, which seems to have shown the world that they were much stronger uh, than the world expected. The Russian military was weaker or had failures, had, had faults, so to speak. Um, now, that was done at a time when, as I said, heavy weaponry was not being provided. Now uh, we see the situation has changed in the last few weeks. Um, there's been you know, a very, very steep increase in the level of support from the United States and other countries, um, Britain uh, within, and countries within Europe are now sending the kind of heavy weapons that Ukraine had been asking for. And in my view, had that, you know, that is a kind of an admission that heavy weaponry is needed for Ukraine to defend itself. And in my view, to go further, I would say it's a kind of an admission on the part of those countries that the military defeat is really only the only way out of this solution, no matter you know, at what point some diplomatic or, or, or peace negotiations you know, will come into play. They can only come into play, in my view, after Russia has sustained a military defeat. Are you concerned about the idea of Putin and Russia being backed into a corner? And do you think that them, I guess, losing this particular conflict might force their hand into something like nuclear action? Are you concerned about that? Um, of course, of course, you know, the whole world has to be concerned about that. And in fact, that's actually something I remember. I don't have the date in front of me, but I remember... Um, you know, many weeks ago, Zelensky was asked, um, you know, that question. And 
his response, I think he was being interviewed um, by CNN, if I'm not mistaken. But in any case, his question was, well, not only am I concerned, but the whole world needs to be concerned because of course, you know, that sort of action would affect not only Ukraine, but, um, you know, it would affect really the, the entire world. Um, I guess though, I see um, the nuclear sort of blackmail as something that has existed throughout the entire period of this full-scale invasion. Um, I also feel, as do some of the countries or some of the leaders of the countries who are neighboring Ukraine and who feel themselves at most threat, that um, despite this sort of blackmail coming from Russia, that the world still can't capitulate and allow Putin to get what he wants. Um, I, can, I can sort of explain that a little bit further down the track, but first of all, it might be interesting to go back to the words of the Polish prime minister um, back in March, actually, on the 26th. And he actually said this, quote, the fact that Russia has a nuclear arsenal cannot be an excuse for passivity. We must be cognizant of this threat, but it cannot hold us back. Otherwise, Putin will only go further. And I must admit, I agree with that view that if Putin is um, given what he wants, um, if he is given, if he basically can take territory uh, from Ukraine by invading militarily and threatening nuclear war, um, I think that the precedent that will set, uh, you know, will be will be devastating not only for Ukraine but for other countries um, who who are also which are also in you know direct threat. I think. The Polish Prime Minister said that in March. Now in May, this month, but on the 8th of May, um, NATO via Stoltenberg um, said that they, NATO had not noticed any changes in Russia's nuclear strategy. Um, that the alliance, uh, quote, the alliance sees no indications of a higher level of readiness on the Russian, of, of the Russian nuclear arsenal. So, I mean, in my understanding, there are several steps or stages um, of preparedness that you know a country needs to go through in order to activate its nuclear arsenal. We're not seeing Russia doing that um, yet. That's, that's how I understand Stoltenberg's words there earlier this month. Um, obviously, we should remember that, that that threat is there. But one thing I think we need to also remember is that there already is a nuclear threat um, in that, Russian forces have taken over um, two nuclear power plants. Now, uh, one is the uh, Chernobyl um, zone. Now that has been sort of given back as it were to Ukraine. Um, but, you know, each day that this war continues, a nuclear power station located in Zaporizhia, it's the largest power station in Europe, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, um, now, on the 4th of March, that power station was attacked by Russian forces. And because of the attack, 
um, part of it caught fire. Um, now that fire was successfully put out by Ukrainian firefighters, but Russian forces were actually firing at Ukrainian firefighters whilst they were putting out the fire. Now, that level of irresponsibility um, means that any nuclear power station um, that Russian forces are occupying or that you know, is under Russian occupation, I think poses a real threat. I, I do remember um, early in the piece, uh, I can't remember whether I read it or whether I heard it reported that a, an expert was saying that should that you know, station explode, it'll be 10 times what we saw in Chernobyl you know, back in 1986. Um, so in a sense, the, the war already has turned to nuclear. Um, and I go back to that point that in my view, appeasement um, will not bring lasting peace to Europe. If, if, if the United States, Britain, Europe, I mean, if, if they give Putin what he wants, if, if borders are redrawn as a result of unprovoked invasion, unprovoked aggression, I think this will set a very dangerous international precedent. And I think that this is something that countries that are most, most at risk already understand. So that's why I think we see such strong words coming from Poland. Uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they've also been consistent in their support of Ukraine and, 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 and even heightening, you know, calling for the support to be heightened. Finland and Sweden obviously understand this, um, given that they've now decided to apply to join NATO. Uh, the statements coming out of Finland actually said openly that, you know, we understand what's happened to Ukraine can happen to us. So I think that, yes, concerning as, as these nuclear threats, or as the nuclear threat is, I still think that it should not be um, the cause for capitulation to Putin's demands. How then do you see the war playing out? Do you think Ukraine can recover and ensure that new borders aren't drawn? Well, let me answer the second part of the question first. I think that's the easier one to answer. Can Ukraine rebuild and you know, recover? Um, and I think that, that answer is yes. I mean, resoundingly, yes. Um, certainly Ukraine can rebuild and recover. And I think, and I say this for two reasons. I say this firstly because I believe that um, Europe and the United States um, and other countries around the world perhaps will give the kind of assistance that it's promising. I mean, effectively, Britain, the United States, other countries within Europe, you know, are promising already, uh, are committing themselves to money, um, to assistance in actually rebuilding. I mean, for example, um, it was, I think about a week ago that um, Zelensky announced that he had been discussing with American universities um, how they can assist in actually rebuilding the university sector in Ukraine, because unfortunately um, schools and universities all across Ukraine um, have been targeted you know, as, as have other aspects of you know, critical aspects of infrastructure, hospitals and you know, supermarkets and things, but schools and universities are destroyed. 
Um, so Zelensky has turned to the United States asking for help uh, in rebuilding um, the education sector. When Zelensky was speaking to our parliament, um, I think it was in the end of March, uh, one of the things that he asked us uh, as Australians, one of the things he asked the Australian government was that when it comes time to rebuild, would the Australian government assist in um, rethinking, re-envisioning, uh, re and constructing, reconstructing um, the southern ports of Ukraine. Now, these areas in the south, the, the coastal areas stretching from the south, you know, further into the east, they are now under Russian occupation. And um, well, we have, we know, for example, that Mariupol is ninety percent destroyed as a city. Um, those those areas, those ports, those port cities um, will need to be rebuilt. And Zelensky asked Australia, as a country that also understands shipping, underst understands um, you know how how integral um, maintaining you know coast coastal areas and ports are, um, asked Australia to help in that. So I do think that considering the assistance that Ukraine will receive um, from other countries in the world, I think that yes, Ukraine can rebuild. On the point of recovering, I think that we look to the civilian resistance that we've already been seeing in Ukraine to understand that um, the civilian population of Ukraine um, together with obviously the military um, has, has waged such an effective and resilient resistance that I think there's no doubt that that will continue. And I think that there's no doubt that that same strength of identity, of cultural identity, of national identity, um, that same strength of identity will mean that yes, they will recover. Um, I remember a colleague of mine who's um, a Ukrainian political scientist, his name is um, Nikola Repchuk. One of the, um, I heard him being interviewed, oh, I guess about two days before February 24. Actually, it was um, our ABC was interviewing him because they, they asked me to, to recommend someone who'd be able to speak on. At that stage, you know, the, the troop buildup was, was happening. And he was asked the question, you know, what will happen if Russia does now further invade? Um, and he simply said, um, we have no choice but to fight. Uh, and he said something like, um, Ukrainians cannot compromise on their very existence. And I think that the fact that Ukrainians were not prepared to compromise showed us that Ukrainians understood very well the nature of that Russian imperialism, of that imperialist agenda, because effectively they understood that they were fighting not only for their territory, for their actual land, but for their very identity as Ukrainians. The, the Russification that we already see happening in the occupied areas in the south and east of Ukraine, um, that is what Ukrainians understood was going to happen. That not only were Ukrainians not going to be allowed um, human rights and political freedoms that you know, a democracy allows, they were also not going to be allowed to speak Ukrainian, uh, to have um, 
to know their own Ukrainian history. I mean, we already see now in the south of Ukraine, books of Ukrainian history and culture are being removed from libraries and schools and being destroyed. Uh, teachers are being um, involuntarily placed in, in uh, what they call filtration camps, which are basically indoctrination camps. Um, you know, a supposed new curriculum uh, is being introduced, which of course involves, you know, the, the Russian version, the Russian falsification of Ukrainian history. These, these things are already being put into place. Um, Ukrainians understood very well that, that they would not only lose their human rights, their democratic rights, if Russia occupied Ukraine, they would actually lose their ability to be linguistically, culturally, um, and in terms of national identity Ukrainian. So I think that that strength of resilience and resistance will, will allow Ukraine to recover. Well, I know that speaking on behalf of everyone, we certainly hope that you're correct in that prediction. Um, and they seem to be an extremely strong country led by a strong leader, as you said. Uh, and we hope that this can come to a positive end for Ukraine and that their future is bright. Doctor, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was um, a, an extremely informative conversation and I really appreciate you giving your time. No worries. Thanks very much.